Corporations and Propaganda Managing Public Opinion by Alex Carey. A quote is haunting the writings of notables such as Noam Chomsky, Ed Herman, and John Stauber. It describes the essence of today's unprecedented power of the media to define what people think, know, and fear. The quote sums up a most important aspect of U.S. history. It says, The 20th century is marked by three developments of great historic importance. The growth of democracy via the expansion of the franchise, the growth of corporations, and the growth of propaganda as a means of protecting corporate power against democracy. Alex Carey, who wrote this, is no longer alive. The Australian sociologist and psychologist left behind a set of manuscripts that traced the history of propaganda in the U.S. from World War I to the Reagan era. When Noam Chomsky dedicated his book, Manufacturing Consent, to his memory, he wrote that Alex Carey would have written the definitive history of propaganda had he lived to complete his work. Today, you will hear from his original 60-page manuscript that received such praise. Even Thomas Jefferson predicted that corporate power could undermine freedom and democracy. Those who feel today that democracy has failed ought to consider Alex Carey's well-documented report of the most intense and most expensive sales campaign that corporations have ever undertaken. And this three-quarter century effort of social engineering was not for a product, but for the unfettered rights and the power of industry and the so-called free market system that has now culminated in the global trading system and the WTO. Democracy did not fall, Carey says, but it was dismantled, and it is surely in crisis today. Carey says that the U.S. people are the most brainwashed of any other major industrial power. It happened slowly, over decades, almost unnoticed, and now prevents us from exercising the rights that are duly ours. Since no police or military power could force us to submit, a media apparatus was built to convince us to give up many of our rights, dreams, and aspirations. And Alex Carey says that those who now wield the power taken from us are large corporations. Here is the first half of a two-part program on the history of propaganda in the U.S. Alex Carey on managing public opinion. The reader is Ed Markman. Corporations had two major objectives as they developed propaganda as a tool of managing public opinion to identify the free enterprise system with every cherished value, and to identify unions with interventionist governments, tyranny, oppression, and subversion. He lists the techniques to achieve these results. They're all called by familiar names, public relations, corporate communications, and economic education. In order to defend business interests against popular governments and against labor unions, a complex of institutions has been created, their expressed purpose is to monitor public opinion and manage it within the ideological confines acceptable to American business. For 50 years, U.S. businesses alone in the world 
made great progress toward the ideal of propaganda, a managed democracy. Since 1970, businesses in other countries have begun to adopt that model. This transfer carries a profound threat to the democratic institutions and the union movement in these countries. The history of the last 80 years shows that such a victory was not entirely simple and easy for the corporations. Alex Carey identifies three phases, each of which shows strong advances of the union and democratic movements in the U.S., and each ending with propaganda assaults that ended these phases. For the first period, spanning World War I, Carey describes the union gains during the war and the defeat of the labor movement in that brief but violent period of anti-leftism ending in the Palmer raids of the early 1920s. Phase two, from 1932 till 1950, spans the Depression, World War II, and the beginning of the second campaign against the left under McCarthy. Again, union gains during World War II are rolled back, and new restrictive labor laws are enacted to limit the gains made by labor during the 30s. In the light of that history, the emergence of the neoconservative movements as a strong political power and Ronald Reagan's victory appears as the culmination of more than half a century of political work. Carey talks about that phase in the third part of his work and states that the only thing that is new about the current new right, which sets the political agenda in the U.S., is the unprecedented output and scale of funding of business-sponsored propaganda. Propaganda in democracies is usually not recognized as that. Propaganda is supposedly a tool only in totalitarian regimes. Now, Carey argues, why would only a totalitarian government have to rely on propaganda to convince its citizens of particular policies, although these citizens have no power to affect these policies? Common sense would suggest that propaganda is much more needed in democratic societies where citizens have the right and in theory, the power, to change the policies of their governments. But as Alex Carey says, common sense has already become a victim of propaganda. It is very striking that Noam Chomsky develops a very similar argument. Although we call our era the age of Orwell, the fact is that Orwell was a latecomer on the scene. In the 1920s, a sophisticated American public relations industry was already developing and writing about the tools Orwell described. In 1921, the famous American journalist Walter Lippmann said that the art of democracy requires what he called the manufacture of consent, what the public relations industry calls the engineering of consent. The idea was that in a state in which the government can't control the people by force, it had better control what they think. That was a quote by MIT professor of linguistics and political scientist Noam Chomsky. And now allow me to take you back in time to the beginning of the century the first stage of engineered consent, the beginnings of corporate propaganda. Alex Carey, Democracy and Propaganda, the first popular challenge from the beginning till 1920. Between 1880 and 1920, the popular vote in the United States and the United Kingdom was extended from around 10 to 15 percent of the population to 40 or 50 percent. Leading researchers warned as early as 1909 of the likely consequences of this development. Popular election 
may work fairly well as long as those questions are not raised which cause the holders of wealth and power to make full use of their resources. But should wealth and power be challenged, there is so much skill to be bought, and the art of using skill for the production of emotion and opinion has so advanced that the whole condition of political contests would be changed for the future. Four years later, in 1913, a committee of the U.S. Congress was established to investigate the mass dissemination of propaganda by the National Association of Manufacturers, hereafter called the NAM, the leading business organization of the time for the purpose of influencing legislation by influencing public opinion. The committee appears to have been no little awed by the apparent ambitions of the NAM for meeting the challenge to its interest from popular democracy by controlling public opinion. Its investigations revealed, the committee reported, that the aspirations of the NAM were so vast and far-reaching as to excite at once admiration and fear, admiration for the genius which conceived them and fear for the effects which the accomplishment of all these ambitions might have in a government such as ours. The committee's report coincided with the beginning of World War I, during which the Allied governments expended unprecedented resources on the development and dissemination of propaganda to create patriotism and hatred. Propaganda became a science and a profession. A campaign launched by President Wilson on America's entry into the war in 1917 filled every home, workplace, and leisure activity of the society with its messages. The campaign produced within six months so intense an anti-German hysteria as to permanently impress American business, and Adolf Hitler among others, with the potential of large-scale propaganda to control public opinion. Walter Lippmann, the eminent journalist, and Edward Bernays, a nephew of Sigmund Freud, served with Wilson's propaganda organization. Bernays led the transfer of wartime propaganda skills to businesses' peacetime problems of coping with democracy. When the war ended, Bernays later wrote, businesses realized that the great public could now be harnessed to their cause as it had been harnessed during the war to the national cause, and the same methods would do the job. This wartime governmental propaganda organization, I might add, was called the U.S. Committee on Public Information and was the first propaganda institution in this country, and Edward Bernays was the only professional public relations man in this office. It seems ironic in retrospect that his uncle, Sigmund Freud, made major discoveries about the subconscious, while the nephew goes on to place these discoveries in the use of government and business. Bernays remembers that some media actually refused to accept his publicity stunts as news, 
There was at that time a certain integrity with some media who insisted that so-called manufactured events were not news and should not be reported. When the war ended, there was a confrontation between American business and labor. Business was determined to roll back the limited union gains made under wartime conditions. The confrontation culminated in the great steel strike of 1919. The central issue of the strike was, in the words of Samuel Gompers, the right of wage owners to bargain collectively. At the outset, public opinion favored the strikers, who worked an 84-hour week under notoriously bad conditions. Five days after the strike began, the Steel Corporation launched a campaign of full-page advertisements which urged the strikers to return to work, denounced their leaders as trying to establish the red rule of anarchy and Bolshevism, the strike as un-American, and even suggested that the Huns had a hand in fomenting the strike. The strike was monitored by a remarkable body called the Interchurch World Movement, IWM, which was comprised of 26 Protestant churches. The IWM produced a two-volume report which concluded that the strike was defeated by the strike-breaking methods of the steel companies and their effective mobilization of public opinion against the strikers through the charges of radicalism, Bolshevism, and the closed shop, none of which were justified by the facts, and through the hostility of the press giving biased and colored news. Historian Robert Murray sums up the consequences. When the strike ended in January 1920, the men had gained not a single concession. Twenty lives had been sacrificed and $112 million lost in wages. Backed by a favorable public opinion which was based on an exaggerated fear of Bolshevism, this corporation proved that not even 350,000 strikers could prevail against it. The Secretary of Labor of the period, Louis Post, has described how, supported by corporate interest, the propaganda assault on public opinion was widened and extended until it produced an anti-red hysteria about an invented plan by workers and their leaders to overthrow the government. A McCarthyist period ensued from 1919 to 1921, more severe, though of shorter duration, than the McCarthy period after World War II. And here then, as final speaker on today's program, is Warren G. Harding, delivering in 1920 a presidential campaign address titled, Liberty Under the Law. It would be the blindness of folly to ignore the activities in our own country which are aimed to destroy our economic system and to commit us to the colossal tragedy which has both destroyed all freedom and made Russia impotent. He who threatens destruction of the government by force or flaunts his contempt for lawful authority ceases to be a loyal citizen and forfeits his right to the freedom of the republic. Meantime in Europe, where a similar progressive period was not cut off by a propaganda assault on public opinion, a different result ensued. Charles Forsay observes that after World War I in Great Britain and elsewhere, liberal parties gave way to labor or social democratic groups. In the United States, by contrast, politics moved in the opposite direction, and the socialists during the 20s virtually disappeared while liberals were reduced to an ineffective few. During the 1920s, American intellectuals, 
reflecting on wartime and post-war experience, believe that democracy had reached a crisis. The manufacture of consent was supposed to have died out with the appearance of democracy. Walter Lippmann wrote in 1922, but it has not died out. It has, in fact, improved enormously in technique. Under the impact of propaganda, he concluded, it is no longer possible to believe in the original dogma of democracy, i.e., that it necessarily reflects the popular will in any significant way. Reviewing the experience of World War I, Harold Laswell, the leading American student of propaganda for the next 50 years, reached similar conclusions in 1927. With the decline of the authority of crown, church, and social class, and the rise of egalitarianism generally, propaganda had become the principal method of social control. If the mass will be free of chains of iron, it must accept chains of silver. If it will not love, honor, and obey, it must not expect to escape seduction. Depression and Propaganda, The Second Popular Challenge, Chapter Two of Managing Public Opinion by Alex Carey. Throughout the 1920s, American business had no more problems with democracy or trade unions. However, the onset of the Great Depression changed that circumstance dramatically. With tens of millions jobless and hungry, business was initially stunned by the intensity of public hostility. For the first time, American business's ideological hegemony over American society was temporarily broken. It became politically and morally respectable to advocate government ownership, socialism, and even communism as alternatives to the free enterprise system, a development which provided a multitude of victims for the second McCarthy period of the 1950s. By 1934, American business, led by the NAM, had organized itself for a massive campaign to recapture public opinion. Public policies in our democracy are eventually a reflection of public opinion, the NAM warned its members, so public opinion must be reshaped if we are to avoid disaster. A nationwide assault on public opinion was rapidly coordinated. By 1935, the president of the NAM could report to a meeting of business leaders you will note especially that this is not a hit-or-miss program. It is skillfully integrated so as to gradually blanket every media. And then it pounds its message home with relentless determination. But while the Depression lasted, even the resources of business and its Red Scare tactics could not rapidly prevail. As late as 1938, the NAM's board of directors, in a curiously Marxist formulation, still found the hazard facing industrialists lies in the newly realized political power of the masses. Unless their thinking is directed, it warned, we are definitely headed for adversity. The following year, the La Follette Committee, a committee of the U.S. Senate, which had been established to investigate violations of the rights of labor, incidentally exposed the extraordinary scale of business's assault on public opinion. Of the National Association of Manufacturers in particular, the Congressional Committee reported in 1939, NAM blanketed the country with propaganda which in technique has relied upon indirection of meaning and in presentation on secrecy and deception. Radio speeches, public meetings, news, cartoons, 
editorials, advertising, motion pictures, and many other artifices of propaganda have not, in most instances, disclosed to the public their origin within the association. In the same year, Professor Laswell, referring to the tremendous campaign that had been conducted by business, concluded that, for better or for worse, the future of business is bound up with propaganda. Meantime, public relations techniques for combating unions had also made progress. Until the passage of the Wagner Act in 1935, which required managements to bargain with representatives of labor, unions had few rights, and attempts to organize workers were commonly met with violence and intimidation. After the Wagner Act, the industrialists sought, in the words of the La Follette Committee, a new alignment of forces. That is, they sought through propaganda and other means to arouse and organize the public at large to do to labor on industry's behalf what the individual employer himself could no longer do legally. This tactic, it was reported at the time, envisages a public opinion aroused to the point where it will tolerate the often outrageous use of force by police or vigilantes to break a strike. The Remington Rand Corporation is credited with having perfected this tactic, which then became known as the Mohawk Valley Formula. The NAM distributed details of the formula to all members in a special release in July 1936. In essence, the formula consists in employer mobilization of the public in a labor dispute. Some excerpts from an account of its use will indicate its more significant features. These features foreshadow the general subordination of industrial relations to public relations that developed in the decades after World War II. The dispute was between the CIO and the Bethlehem plant at Johnstown, Pennsylvania, which refused to recognize the steel union. Bethlehem Steel was aided in the dispute by the national publicity of the Iron and Steel Institute and the National Association of Manufacturers. Radio programs, outdoor advertising, news services, films, and speakers bureaus deluged the country with anti-CIO propaganda. A full-page advertisement in 375 papers at the outset of the CIO steel campaign had cost as much as $314,000. Wake Up America. The American Economic Foundation presents the 90th broadcast of the Wake Up America Radio Forum, the court of open argument where the problems of the nation are analyzed and the voice of the people may be heard. This discussion will center around the future of free competitive enterprise in America. The speakers are the Honorable T.V. Smith, former congressman at large, lecturer and educator in the field of philosophy. And Dr. Alfred P. Hockey, During the strike, a National Citizens Committee, which purported to be a spontaneous expression of community sentiment, was launched by local businessmen. This artificially created Citizens Committee engaged in an advertising agency and a public relations council. More than $62,000 in donations was collected. The committee twice broadcast its messages over a national network, Two full-page advertisements appeared in 30 newspapers in 13 states at a cost of $64,000. After the strike was broken, a labor bulletin of the NAM epitomized the rationale of the Mohawk Valley formula. If there ever was a strike that was broken by public opinion and the determination of employees to work, it was the one at Johnstown in 1937. That doesn't mean, however, that public opinion was the only method of strike-breaking in the 30s. 
Auerbach in Labor and Liberty reports that between 1933 and 1937, Republic Steel, United States Steel, Bethlehem Steel, and Youngstown Steel and Tube each purchased more gas equipment than did any law enforcement agency in the United States. Republic, with 52,000 employees, purchased more than 10 times as many gas guns and more than 26 times as many gas shells and projectiles as did the Chicago Police Department, which was responsible for the safety of 3.3 million persons. During the same period, explains Alex Carey, Republic Steel hired the PR firm of Hill and Knowlton to look after its reputation while employing an extensive espionage network and locking workers out of plants. In many cases, such public relations served simply as a protective screen for the violence used by corporations. But such public relations seen in the context of labor history represents also a real change in corporate policies. Strikes are no longer broken or violently suppressed, testifies an executive before the La Follette Committee. The new way to win or combat a strike is by organizing community sentiment. This is the beginning of a new era. After World War II, the emphasis has shifted almost entirely to public relations. Before World War II, business had campaigned against the Roosevelt administration and accused it of carrying the country towards communism or even fascism. During the war, business had to curb its campaign. However, in the last year of the war, American business, and the NAM in particular, geared up as it had after World War I to beat back both government intervention and the growing power of unions. That was the first half of a one-hour program on corporations and propaganda by the late Alex Carey. Alex Carey was an Australian sociologist and psychologist. The reading was from a manuscript he left behind at his death in 1988. The principal reader was Ed Markman. The music is by Chaz Smith. Sound clips are from the audio collection of San Francisco State University. The original program was produced in 1988 with help from the staff at KPFA Radio in Berkeley by me, Mariah Gleiden. It had a huge impact when it first aired and I decided to present it again at this time because it answers so many questions about the media, democracy and corporate power in our age of war and globalization. Next week you will hear what role the industry and Chamber of Commerce played in starting the era of McCarthy and the Un-American Activities Committee. A collection of essays by Alex Carey with a foreword by Noam Chomsky has since been published posthumously under the title Taking the Risk Out of Democracy. You can hear this program again for free on TUC Radio's website, tucradio.org. Look at the newest programs or the podcast page. While you're there, you can subscribe to weekly free podcasts. Downloads are free, and we appreciate any size donation to keep TUC Radio on the air. Our email address is TUC at TUCRadio.org. This program was produced off the grid with solar power. Time of useful consciousness is an aeronautical term. 
it's the time between the beginning of oxygen deficiency and the loss of consciousness. Time for useful projects to rescue the planet and the plane. My name is Maria Geleuden. Thank you for listening. <laughs>